Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Johnny Miller. He is the co-founder of Maptia. He's an emotional resilience coach. He's the founder of the Nervous Systems Mastery Course. He's a meditation teacher and host of the Curious Humans podcast. You can find out a lot more about his doings at CuriousHumans.com and at Johnny Miller at Twitter, though that's a funky-ass spelling there, Johnny. J-O-N-N-Y-M numeral one L-L-E-R. As usual, all these links will be available at the episode page at JimRutShow.com. So check it out. Welcome, Johnny. It's great to be here. Yeah, excited for this. Yeah, this should be fun. Yeah, this is a completely atypical podcast. So God knows where we'll go with this thing. But sometime back, I guess it was on December 22nd, according to my notes, Johnny tweeted, I've set aside February and March next year to have as many interesting podcast conversations as humanly possible. You guys know any great hosts who might be a good fit? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And for whatever reason, I raised my hand. Though Actually, Johnny and and I had a few conversations previously, and I said, you know, what the hell? Let's have him on. So I just uh, said, DM me if you, if you got the nerve. And he did. So here we are. <laughs> I appreciate the, the British accent there. That was, that was very good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was joking with him earlier. I, was, I wanted to make sure he was an actual Brit, not some American trying to claim the bonus 15 IQ points that Americans wrongly give to British accents. <laughs> Turns out he actually is a Brit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't feel like you're being scammed there, Americans, right? <laughs> so did you have other good podcast episodes from that tweet? Yeah, I've had some great conversations. It's actually been really fun. I, I think I have a podcast myself and, and I love hosting, but just being on the receiving end is so delightful. You just get to turn your brain off and, and just see what comes through. It's really fun. <laughs> exactly. I always tell people when they ask me if I want to come on their podcast, oh, hell yeah, I'm a podcast slut. Just ask me. I'd say yes. Because uh, compared to being the host, yeah. being a guest is like fun, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's cool. like, so, so, sometimes I found myself like saying things that I didn't realize I thought or I knew. And that's, that's always fun. Like, oh, I didn't realize I thought that. Um, so yeah, that's a sign of a good host when they bring that out in you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I'm excited for this one, see, seeing what, what comes through. All right. Yeah, and in our interchange, kind of the origin story of this episode, I wrote, I don't usually have self-help guests on my podcast, <laughs> but you look a lot less banal than most. So let's do it. Right. And you said, hey, let's talk about why the hell it is I hate self-help. So let's start there. That's, that's great. Good. Yeah. Well, why don't you kick us off? And uh, what what is it that annoys you, frustrates you about the the self help world? And I have thoughts on this too. Yeah, no, it is, it is. Of course, I as I often say, I have opinions strongly stated but weakly held. Right. Uh-huh. So yeah, yeah. if I rant and rave a little bit, you know dilute them with some branch water and you'll probably be fairly close to a reality on this topic. <laughs> I suppose I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take kind of the straw man mode of attack on this one, which is I kind of feel like I much prefer 
being a natural person, a naturalist, who I am, what I am, existing in the world, doing my work, and what what happens, happens. In the same way, back in the days when I looked at such things, which was quite a while ago, I did not like fake boobs or shaved beavers in porn, right? <laughs> I like actual girls, God damn it, right? And so for and sort of in a similar vein, you know, I've never felt any desire for taking a self-improvement class or talking to a therapist or any of that. And here's one that people today will probably find amazing. Throughout my business career, I managed to avoid ever going to a training course. Mm. You know, you, I worked <laughs> for big corporations for, you know, 10 years or thereabouts, a little bit more than that in my business career. And, and I would occasionally get scheduled for them. And I just wouldn't show up. Nothing ever happened. Nobody ever even said a word, right? So I managed to be not only unshrunk, unimproved, but untrained throughout my whole life. And I kind of like it that way. I just sort of think, consider myself as a natural human who lives in an ecosystem, who learns from the ecosystem, rather than having to be manipulated by somebody. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I think that's yeah. I think that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I think for me, a lot of self-help is is actually I think it's like deconditioning and unlearning a lot of the shit that we get indoctrinated with during like our early years. And I also feel like I mean, the 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 idea of self-help is in some ways ludicrous in the way that you know Alan Watts says you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and it's like there is definitely a trap that I see a lot of people fall into where they're just endlessly trying to optimize themselves and they're kind of treating themselves as like machines and they're trying to endlessly improve themselves as if they're, as if they're like a product. And I think that is, you know, while it may be useful in the beginning, it's definitely a trap that people do fall into. And, and I think in some ways the, the end state is is like letting go of the need to improve yourself at all. And uh, like Steve Steve March talks about self-unfoldment and, and like creating the conditions for self-unfoldment to emerge as opposed to trying to improve or intervene in some way. And it sounds like you're you're in the more unfolding camp. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> Who was going to said that? That's Steve March. He, he founded the Aletheia Coaches. Okay, that Coaches sounds kind of cool. Because if I had to, you know, describe my own technique, I don't have a technique, but if I was going to describe <laughs> it, something like that, you know, mm-hmm. I've intentionally done lots of wild and crazy shit, exposed myself to, you know, uh-huh. big risks. And, you know, I hitchhiked 50,000 miles when I was young, did wow. all kinds of crazy things then, started various companies, some of them good ideas, some of them not so good ideas, you know, doesn't matter. You know, always, always try to be somewhere near the edge, right? Because near mm-hmm. the edge, interesting things are happening. Mm-hmm. And if you're, spend your time fairly close to the edge, then you will unfold. I like that. That's, that's good yeah. terminology. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And, and in some ways, like it's, it's pretty hard not to, you know, improve quote unquote, if you are living a life in that way, like just, just a, a friend of mine says, just try and not improve for a week and just like, see what happens. <laughs> and if you do inter- interesting stuff, like hitchhike through foreign countries, start companies, like when you are at that edge, improvement is almost or improvement isn't even the right word like unfoldment is almost inevitable in in some way i i I think the piece that i want to add is that you know often we have these these enormous blind spots and biases and having other perspectives to help like poke at these and point these out and and also tools or an ecology of practices to use a, a game b term is enormously useful for ensuring that we're not bullshitting ourselves and also making progress 
in in this like you know infinite game of learning about ourselves and self discovery. Yeah, I must say, I mean, if I, you know, even if I, uh, for my own self, say, yeah, fuck that shit, I do, uh, you know, of course, this is always dangerous, good for thee, but not for me, right? Uh, uh, I, yeah. I do like a lot, you know, the work of people like John Verveke in particular, you know, thinking mm -hmm. about ecologies of practice and in game B terminology, we sometimes call that deprogramming from game A malware, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff that's in our head from the way we've lived in, in our world that, would be kind of nice to get rid of. And, and so I see, I think that, you know, if you come at it with, from with that perspective, then I, I say, yeah, that could be pretty cool, mm. I suppose. Though I think I was kind of lucky. I've always been a skeptic and a, a basically disagreeable person. I didn't ever give a fuck what anybody thought, right? <laughs> so I think, uh, not. A, I mean, yes, some game B malware has lodged in my brain, but probably less than average. But for people who are less sort of hardcore disagreeable, I can see that's going to be an important part of sort of shaking loose of what's screwed up about the world. Mm. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think at least from the the lens in which I'm like currently viewing the world, a lot of the game A malware is stemming from what I frame as like nervous system dysregulation. And it's like the, the ways in which we get trapped in reactivity and, and we have these like patterns that are in our nervous system that just cause us to react in default shitty ways. And I think a lot of the organizations and the, the systems that we've built are stemming from that state of dysregulation. And so the, the approach that I'm taking is like, if we can find more regulation in ourselves, then ultimately that will ripple out into organizations, companies, systemic change. Yeah, in Game B terminology, we, I think, call that sovereignty, right? Yeah, yeah. If you can actually be an adult person in the world right. and not have your buttons easily pushed and, and such. One thing I think I read that you had said, I'll check in with you on this, don't want to put words in your mouth, is that yeah, I think you referenced someplace that one of the problems of the world today is people take a lot of pills to kind of do mm. shit to their to their nervous system. Mm. You know, I ain't, I ain't one of those. I'll tell you that. I've never taken those psychoactive pills other than <laughs> purely for recreational and abusive purposes <laughs> in my younger years. I'll confess to have been a fan of methamphetamine and things of that sort. Uh -huh. uh, LSD, mushrooms. Yeah, but I would never waste them to, you know, to manage my everyday state, strictly party drugs. But as we know, <laughs> in our current world, there are a lot of people who get, you know, trapped into like doing Adderall as a way to compete in white collar work. In fact, right. I, I recently pointed that out as a classic multipolar trap where, mm. you know, if everybody else at work is doing it, then you sort of have to do it. If you if you don't want to get, at least if you're a person of relatively low psychic energy, you're going to get sucked into it because if you don't, you're going to be outcompeted by the other guy. Mm -hmm. So where do, how do you know, this bad habit people are falling into of taking all this psychoactive pills fit in your model of nervous mm. system regulation. Yeah. Well, I like that you mentioned sovereignty and I think that's actually a big piece of this. And what I think a lot of us do is, is we give away our power, our agency to shift our state to external substances. You know, it could be alcohol, coffee, Adderall, like the kind of sleep medication, melatonin, like all these things, which particularly Americans are dosing themselves up with every day. It's essentially to, to shift our state away from a less desired state towards a more desirable state. And there are many, you know, ancient practices for shifting our state using, using the breath, for example, using lots of natural 
state shifting kind of mechanisms that are inside our own body. And for me, that is is giving the power back to the, the individual as opposed to relying on these external substances to you know just get through the day or to to get to sleep or to have energy in the morning. Um, so I think that's a that's a big piece of what I like to talk about because it's yeah it's essentially like we we create these prisons for ourselves if we're reliant on these these drugs with the exception of like the the recreational purposes and and so it it is giving people more freedom and autonomy if they can learn to self-regulate their nervous system as and when they need yeah i noticed you had on your podcast one of the people i think really is smart in this space is jamie wheel Mm. Right. And, you know, he makes the point that peak experiences, flow states, things of that sort, because she's also into breath and, you know, things of that ilk. So Uh he seems to be a guy who has some ideas in a similar space. How would you, how would you compare, compare and contrast your approach to Jamie's who's, he's been on the podcast, I don't know, two or three times. So people are, our listeners have heard, heard him before. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie's great. He, I mean, he calls it hedonic engineering, I think is his phrase. And he, it's his kind of approach is more for finding peak states and creating altered states of consciousness to, you know, have these, he says like to have an IQ of 300 for 12 minutes, <laughs> you know, things like this. And I think that's, that's amazing as well. I think I'm focusing more on the, the everyday applications of, of using breath of increasing interoception and, and like somatic self-awareness to just even listen to the data that's coming from our bodies the whole time, as opposed to just being, stuck in our heads um, and, and and the the other focus that jamie does talk about to some degree but practices for emotional fluidity and working with emotions so that we're not hijacked by them and we're able to kind of feel them fully and again jamie does talk about this too but you know he he talks about a lot of stuff <laughs> and and his main focus i guess is with the background in the flow camp and with with leadership training and that kind of stuff so i think that's where his his main energy is yeah it sounds like he's more you know, of course, as you say, he talks about all kinds of things, but he's, he's really, or at least from my perspective, highly focused on peak experiences, on yeah. pushing yourself as far as you can go. And it sounds like maybe you're more oriented towards, you know, day to day. Is that, is that, a, is that a reasonable distinction? Yeah, it is. I, I'd say, so in the neuroscience literature, there's an idea of like the window of tolerance. And sometimes it can be healthy to go deliberately, like you were saying earlier, like at your edge outside of your window of tolerance and that's how you kind of build this adaptation to stress and it's how we grow and it's also really important to know where that window is for each of us so that we're not finding ourselves outside of that window during you know during a boardroom meeting during a podcast conversation and learning how to increase the size of that window and kind of up and down regulate depending on, on where we're at um, and, and I, I think that the main like one of the things that I'm really passionate about talking about is this idea of interoception and like feeling the somatic cues in our body when we are in this state of reactivity. And that could be stress, anxiety, overwhelm, or it could be um, what's known as dorsal shutdown, which is more like the depression, lethargy, you know, when people can't get out of bed in the mornings. And, and so I think having that map almost like map of our own bodies and knowing okay i'm in like low tone dorsal shutdown right now i'm gonna go outside for a walk or go for a run or do some stri- you know whatever it is and being able to to tweak in real time is is really helpful cool yeah one of the things you mentioned you know the uh, exposing yourself to some pressures out there in the world right mm-hmm. kind of brings to mind you know nasim talib's idea of anti-fragility you know the idea that you know things that 
stress us a bit, maybe even hurt us a little bit, make us stronger. You know, the classic example which he gives uses is lifting big weights actually tears your muscles a little bit. And the healing around those little micro tears is actually what helps make you strong. Mm. And I would say that, you know, that's always resonated with me, you know, playing it safe. That just seems like a really boring thing to do. And, and, and the unfolding that we talked about earlier, you know, doesn't happen very rapidly if you're not exposing yourself to risk. And yeah, so yeah. dialing in the appropriate amount of risk in your life sounds like a, a really important life practice. But, you know, again, to your point, and also, you know, Nassim Tlaib, you don't want to be crushed. You don't want to expose yourself to, you know, more risk than you can successfully deal with. You know, how do you Talk about things like that with your clients. Yeah, so I think that's a great, that's a great in analogy to bring in. And I talk about emotional anti-fragility sometimes. And that is exactly as you say, it's like finding what is just beyond our edge, just outside of our window, but not beyond. Because if we go beyond, we'll disassociate, we'll check out, we'll, we'll shut down, something will happen. And it, it isn't conducive to self-unfoldment in the long run. And so, to, you know, to give a practical example, like feeling learning how to feel like healthy anger is, is, is really helpful. But if someone's just beginning with this and they, you know, they haven't really expressed anger for like 20 years, that might look like rage in the beginning, or it, it might, it, it might go too far. And so it's, it's helpful to titrate or pendulate like into intensity and then come back into resource and safety. And that process creates anti-fragility in the long run. But what's essential, and this is true of muscle building or, you know, anti-fragility of the nervous system is there must be time for recovery and integration afterwards like with with building muscles you need to eat protein and then you know sleep and that's when the muscle gets built and the same is true with ramping up the nervous system like there needs to be a window of integration and this is particularly true kind of circling back to the peak experiences stuff with jamie wheel like a lot of people will have these peak experiences maybe they'll take LSD at Burning Man or do a huge breathwork journey, but then they'll go straight into another intense thing. And the changes don't actually land in the nervous system when that happens. There needs to be that, that down regulation that's equivalent to the, the height of the peak that they reached in order for things to actually land and integrate. Yeah, if, if only at the neuroscience level, we know that it can take a couple, two, three days for experiences to essentially be written from the hippocampus where they're mm. in medium-term memory to written to the cortex where they can then become part of long-term memory. And there's still some links back to the hippocampus. So the dance is kind of, you know, not entirely straightforward, not as quite as simple as the cartoon version of it. But, you know, there is a period of time of consolidation of experience. Do you have kind of a practitioner sense of how much consolidation is necessary after a peak experience? Mm, yeah, well, in in the context of breathwork journeys, which which I guide through a modality called facilitated breath repatterning, after uh, so that the peak of the journey is usually around forty five minutes, and the the journey ends after ninety minutes. And so, after the peak, we allow another forty five minutes for integration and relaxation. And you can see in someone's breathing rhythm if whatever emotional catharsis or incomplete reflex emerged during the journey if that then landed in their breathing pattern because their breathing will change and so we can see if the thing actually integrated in the integration and relaxation period and then we can obviously see in, in a follow-up session like is is the way they breathe different to how it was before is the is the more vibrancy in the inhale is the more relaxation on the exhale is the breath reaching the the pelvic floor and the lower belly and you can really kind of see in in real time did this thing land and integrate and then 
you can hear, you know, a week later, like, are they still falling into the same reactive patterns with their partner or are they still feeling stressed in the same way? You can also, you know, see, did the thing land in their day-to-day life as well? Yeah, now the mechanical or procedural part presumably gets stored in the basal ganglia, and that can get stored right away. So you can could see behavioral changes, mm-hmm. you know, at the physical level right away. Yeah, but you yeah. might not see the propagation to the cognitive right away. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and the other thing that I'll mention is, you know, I've I've worked with clients who they've brought breath all the way down into their their lower belly and their pelvic floor, maybe for the first time during these sessions. And they say how there's almost like an embodied sense of safety in that they feel in their body purely as of by having brought their breath down here. And so there are these interesting embodied like experiences and felt senses that people can have purely from shifting their breathing rhythms into patterns that they haven't done previously. Yeah, I've been kind of interested in this breath stuff. Unfortunately, I have a kind of a little curious heart condition where they mm. don't recommend doing anything very extreme, mm-hmm. uh, you know, heart arrhythmia, which is fortunately well controlled at the moment, but been warned mm. to watch out for that with respect to that condition. Cause it does sound like it could be a quite interesting practice. And unlike putting chemicals in your head, it's something that you're, you know, you're, it's more natural, right? It's not fake yeah. tits and shaved beavers, right? <laughs> Yeah, this this is the the natural porn version of self transformation. Yeah, so I I mean I'd say you don't. I mean you also don't need to do. When people think of breath work, they might think of holotropic breath work, which is like you know huffing and puffing for three hours with intense music in the background. Yeah, exactly, like that's, that's the kind of that, stuff I've heard about. Yeah, that's what you know Stan Groff pioneered, and, and he was he was amazing. And recent developments in this field have shown that that way of breathing isn't necessarily honoring the nervous system. And so more gentle practices where there's maybe a vibrant inhale, but a relaxed exhale, in my experience, still still create those peak experiences, but without revving up or jacking up the nervous system, again, like outside of the window of tolerance. And so for someone like you, practicing in the beginning, you know, just breathing in and out through the nose could also be really interesting because that, that's almost like breathing in second or third gear as opposed to in and out through the mouth, which is like fourth or fifth gear, which is again, when the nervous system really revs up. So it's definitely still, I, I mean, even, even with a, with a heart condition, I think it's still worth trying. We have to look, maybe uh, we'll hook up with you. We can do it sometime. Sure. It might be fun. Now, another thing I'd like to dig in a little bit, you mentioned anger. And one of the things I've noticed that from the personal development, woo-woo types, et cetera, they, they often seem to have uh, put anger in uh, bad color. Personally, I think anger is good, right? I would say that a significant amount of the good work I've done in the world has come from anger. Mm. And, you know, t- you know, typically if I get angry about something, I'll be hot angry for five minutes and and that might be once every two years right and then most of the time that'll just you know evaporate but once in a while it'll turn into extremely productive cold anger where Mm. something is now my fucking enemy like game a (laughs) is now my fucking enemy right (laughs) i had a a angry reaction to it when the light came on and then it consolidated Five minutes later, I was fine. And then it consolidated over a few days into cold anger. So mm. the same was true in my business career. You know, I've been true in a few, just a few times in my life where hot anger, instead of just dissipating and going away, mm. was consolidated into a very useful frame for providing sort of long-term power to attack something. 
you know, mm. first, I guess I'd ask you, why does anger, why is it in bad color amongst many of these kinds of self-improvement folks? And it sounds like maybe it isn't necessarily in your doctrine. So you know, mm. tell, tell me what you think about, you know, one, why do people think it's bad and how might anger actually be put to good use? Yeah. Well, uh, I think anger is fucking great. <laughs> anger, is, <laughs> anger is absolutely essential. I mean, I think it's quite easy to point to why it's been demonized in our culture because, you know, a lot of pain and suffering has come from unhealthy kind of shadow repressed anger coming out in very harmful ways. And, you know, it's easy to point to particularly hist historical situations where that's been the case. But anger itself, and it's funny, I, I had a friend who he breathed a Buddhist monk, did a breathwork journey with him. And this monk expressed anger for the first time in maybe like 25 years during this journey. And it completely transformed his life. Like it gave him so much more energy and aliveness and vibrancy. And, and it, when we, when we repress our anger and, you know, I did this for probably the first 25 years of my life because, you know, being British, we're not very well known for <laughs> expressing our emotions. Stiff up on that, yes, yes. <laughs> right. Keep going, <laughs> carry on, <laughs> head down. <laughs> and, and kind of coming into a, a healthy relationship with my anger was transformative. I, I mean, one piece is the difference between being nice versus being kind, like, you know, being like the people pleasing night, Mr. Nice guy versus, being kind where you might say things or do things which hurt people in, in the moment, but they're actually kind and loving in, in the long term. And the, the distinction that I use with anger is, it's almost like if you imagine a hose pipe and this like intense energy is coming through the hose, it can be kinked in one of two ways. It can be repressed where you basically like shut it down and you're passive aggressive. You're like, like, I'm not angry. Like you're angry. No. <laughs> or, or it goes the other way and it comes out as rage where you like attack people, you blame people, you, you, you know, you shout at people. And that's, that's also avoiding feeling the anger itself. But the actual, like you used hot and cold, but I think like clean and unclean is a helpful distinction as well. And when it's clean, it's just the energy of like, I really fucking care about this. Like, this is important to me. Like, this is what matters to me. And I'm going to, I'm going to protect it. I'm going to build things that, that help that, you know, help to serve. And it, it's almost, I, I see it as like this, like healthy warrior energy that's, that's in us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and when that is harnessed, it creates, you know, it creates amazing things. It creates change. It shows us what we, what we actually love. Yeah, and to the point of passive aggressive, few things I hate more than passive aggressives, right? In corporate America, they're full of them, right? And I often made it my campaign to disempower the passive aggressives. <laughs> and I had a very interesting little technique for those of you who are ever stuck in corporate America. At one point, I was put in charge of a bunch of these decision-making councils across this big multinational corporation that were supposed to decide on transformative processes within the big corporation. And if you've ever been a big corporation, there's always a bunch of people that don't want to change no matter what. And so they try to stall and slow everything down through passive aggressive techniques. And I found a very good, when I took over these things, they hadn't done shit in years other than talk. And so I said, all right, I'm going to disempower these passive aggressives. Here's how I'm going to do it. I basically going to announce to each of these councils that, all right, we got a deadline. You guys, we have to have a recommendation by September 15th. 
And if we don't, I personally am going to decide, and I'm not going to do a damn bit of research. I'm just going to make a decision. So uh, probably it's going to be way worse for you passive-aggressive motherfuckers than if you participate in good faith in the process, because you at least have some, of course, I didn't say it quite that way, but that's what I was thinking. Uh, you'll have some input into the decision. If not, you know, the radical crazy man ruts is going to decide. So y'all get it done by September 15th or watch out. And I can tell you what, not once did I ever have to make a decision in that context. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, to me, that actually sounds like more empowering in some ways. Like you're like, like being like guys, like wake up. Like, and, and, and I think, you know, for people that are listening and maybe stuck in passive aggressive patterns, which we all do to some degree, creating a space where, the anger is fully welcome. You know, there's things like rage rooms now or going off and like screaming into the forest or, or joining a boxing class, you know, things like this, like healthy outlets for this actually help that like passive aggressive kinkedness to, to shift. Um, and often it will shift into like the rage and then it kind of pendulums back into some sort of healthy medium. Yeah. Some sort of, you know, healthy assertiveness, right? Yeah, clarity, determination, like yeah, like put, this. Put it on the table, dude. Right, and back <laughs> it up. Right, and if you, you win, you lose. Right, you don't win every time, but don't be afraid to get into the arena. God damn it! Right. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Cool. So let's see what else do we want to talk about. I went through our tweets that you and I did back and forth kind of before we decided to do the podcast. And I found some of them at least somewhat interesting. One, you asked, what is the one principle that helps you make decisions? Either one you're coming up with yourself or adopted from someone else. And I posted my reply, hmm. maybe the most important thing for a comprehensive approach to decision-making is having a sense that now is the time to decide this that you have you now have enough information and have done enough processing that deciding now is appropriate neither too early nor too late and again this is i was thinking in business decision context and and you see both errors you know i say type 1 type 2 errors type 1 there are definitely people who are just impulsive and make decisions without having thought it out sufficiently and then there's also analysis paralysis folks that can't make a decision, mm -hmm. even though it's fairly clear that they could and they should, and that delaying does more harm even than taking a chance of being wrong. And so getting some sense of when to make a decision in my art form of life has always been something I've considered myself pretty good at, not perfect. I can give some examples of type one and type two errors, probably more type one than type two, but you know, something that I've tried to teach people who work for me as well. How does that resonate with the things you think about? Yeah, that, that does resonate. And I'm, so I'm drawing my kind of opinions from a guy called Joe Hudson, whose work I, I really admire. And he has this idea that, you know, we, we're making thousands of decisions every single day, like every, every moment. And, and when we think it's a decision as opposed to just a choice, it's usually a sign that we're we're in fear or we're avoiding something. And, and so when we're just making choices, we just keep doing the next most obvious thing until, you know, let's say it's like a business decision and you're buying a company. Like it's, at a certain point, you've done enough research when it's like, it's obvious, okay, I'm, you know, we're going to buy this company. That's the choice. But when we think there's a decision, usually it's binary. That's also another sign that, you know, we're afraid of an outcome. It's deeper down, it's related to avoiding, it's actually directly coming from avoiding a, a certain emotional state. 
And, and, and it's interesting, I, you know, particularly in the business world, there's this myth that like we make rational decisions, like, like facts over feelings. Someone tweeted the other day and it, it's actually, I mean, it's bullshit. Like, and it's been shown through neuroscience and um, the work of, of, of Damasio and, and Descartes era, where he talks about the patient Elliot who had his emotional center removed due to a, some, some sort of brain operation and his entire life fell apart. He couldn't choose between like what to have for lunch or what color pen to use. And even though he still had a high IQ, he was, his, his marriage failed, his business went under, like his, his life fell apart. And it's because every single choice or decision we make is driven ultimately by emotions. And so this is where the work of the, the self-unfoldment, let's say, of emotional fluidity is so important. Because when we are truly willing to feel the full spectrum of emotions, we're not subconsciously avoiding certain choices or certain paths because we're subconsciously afraid to feel that thing. And, and so I, I think the, the work of like, let's say like world-class decision-making in the business world is actually very related to how willing are you to feel the heartbreak of a potential outcome or to feel anger, you know, that might arise. And, and, it, and it's, it's really our lack of capacity to feel that is tainting these choices that we make. And once you start to see it, you, it's like a lens that you kind of start to see everywhere. Yeah, in fact, we had Antonio Damasio on the show not too long wow. ago. Wow! Oh, cool. Back on EP one forty eight, and wow. I've long been a uh, I've read his books going back twenty years, and huh. it is really a profound eye opener when you realize even deciding whether to have corn flakes or rice krispies for breakfast is at the end of the day an emotional tip decision, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, decision paralysis comes from people not willing to let their emotions tip it at the end. Right. But at the same time, you know, I would say the art of good decision. I know, for instance, my family thinks it's quite funny that when I buy a car, I spend two weeks researching, you know, mm -hmm. cars and all right, thinking it through, putting little tables together. Oh, no, dad, dad made a spreadsheet. Oh, no. <laughs> right. And and yet I also know that it is only a quasi structured form of decision making, because at the end of the day, I will not make the decision by multiplying the weights in this column by that column, and whichever one is the highest, I will go with, right? I may actually go through that, that exercise, but I don't necessarily use that to drive my decision. I will become an informed decision maker, but I will let my unconscious, highly high-dimensional processes make the decision for me, but not until I've done adequate prep so that those unconscious processes have useful material to work with. Yeah, totally. And I, I used to do the same thing. I remember I made a spreadsheet. I had like 10 side projects going on and I was like, I don't know where to spend my time. What one should I work on? And I like weighted them by potential impact. Like how much fun am I having? What's the revenue opportunity? All these things. And I looked at the, the end results and I was like, that doesn't align with actually what I feel. And it helps me to realize what I actually felt inside. It was almost like a, a mirror in some ways. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you. I think there's so, and like Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework is really helpful. And there's a number of different cognitive tools to help us reframe choices. But ultimately, we are going to choose what our body thinks is going to make us feel good in the future. Like that's kind of how we work.
Yeah. Uh, if we're healthy, because there are people, presumably. I, how many people do you know that just seem to drive their emotional or mental car into every telephone pole on the road, right? They just seem to have an amazing talent for making the wrong decision every time. But I, that's interesting. But I think that this is a key point in that those decisions are still serving them in some way. Like it, it's allowing them to feel something which which at the very least has felt good in the past. And, you know, you can kind of use the example of, 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 of an addict or a junkie. Like they are using whatever substance it is so that they can feel that temporary like hit of connection and that hit of like, oh, I feel, I feel good, I feel okay. And then there's the shitty long-term consequences, yeah. But it's like, it's still, there's, there's like a weird logic to it in the same way that we have these strategies from childhood which served us in the first five years of our lives but now as supposed adults, they're maybe less helpful. <laughs> but it's like we're still running a lot of those unconscious strategies which were rational at the time, but they're now no longer as useful. Yeah, one domain where I see this constantly driving the emotional and cognitive car to the telephone pole is in romantic relationships. You know, I think we all know people that, man, how could you make six bad choices that are of a similar sort, one after the other? What do, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, well, so, so two things here. Um, firstly, I think romantic relationships are probably the most juicy arenas for for like bringing up our shit, for bringing up our triggers, for bringing up our traumas, repressed emotions, all these kind of things. And when someone is making the same bad choice seven times in a row, that is a, a pretty clear sign that there is a certain emotion which they are avoiding. And it's almost as if life or certainly their partners are giving them opportunities to feel it over and over again. And at some point, there will be such a you know terrible heartbreak or such a, a rock bottom that they'll be forced to feel it and on the other side of feeling the fucking thing there will be freedom and there will be more sovereignty um, but that's I, I feel like that is the way life works it gives us these opportunities so if we're if you know if we're making six seven bad decisions in a row that have a common theme it's like huh like what what is the thing here that is maybe asking to be felt or looked at Another thing from relationships, again, watching them, I will say, very fortunately, I found the right person many years ago, been happily married for what will be how many years in June? 42 years. Whoa. Right? And <laughs> we are just such a good couple, it's scary, right? But uh, of course, we've seen lots of others in action. And uh, one of the patterns that we see a fair bit is, in, especially in interpersonal, romantic, couple-type relationships, is usually one, and if it's both, it's really, really crazy, who seem to need, we would, well, I would describe it as needlessly adding drama to the relationship as if they need drama in their lives. Mm -hmm. you know, okay. What is, you know, why get all worked up about petty bullshit, right? And yet you see it time and time mm -hmm. again. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's it's tricky without having a specific example, but I, I think often when that, and not to stereotype, but it is often the female or the, the feminine that's like bringing up the, the intense emotion or the drama, there's often some wisdom there or something that they're pointing to, but it's just being like, it's being raised in an unskillful way. And when it comes to like, you know, the petty arguments, it's it's so rarely about the actual, like the thing that they think they're arguing about. It's almost always about something deeper. And so the work is really to kind of recognize like, oh shit, I'm doing that thing again, 
Like, let's let me take a moment to like find my breath, regulate, tune in, feel safe, and then be like, okay, what emotion is here? Like, what is the what is this situation that's uh, you know that I think is about washing the dishes or you know some petty shit? Like, what is that actually pointing to that's in me? And then how can I? And and that's the other thing. I think we often have this tendency to like blame the other or, you know, it, it's their shit or it's her shit. But if there's something going on between the two of you, there's always something for both people because they're both creating the conditions for that to arise. And so the ninja move is to be able to like have that like slightly more spacious awareness and be like, okay, we're doing that thing again. Like what's here? What's actually under the surface? What are some of the deeper feelings? You know, maybe it's something from a past relationship or maybe it's something from our childhood or you know, all these things. And, and that's the, I think that's the work and, and realizing that the drama is never actually about the thing, but it's pointing to something deeper that our subconscious is like, like begging us to feel and begging us to bring up. And, you know, I would also suggest that it may also be a failure of communications, right? That if mm-hmm. the couple would just sort of put their cards on the table and, you know, not play kind of hide the card kinds of games, uh, these things can, you know, generally be resolved, right? Or not, or you decide they're not resolvable. At least you decide one way or the other. You're not just caught in this interminable, highly draining, emotional <laughs> fucking shitstorm for 15 years right yeah i mean when you put it like that it's like yeah obviously and (laughs) communicating in that way i think the biggest barrier is is both owning our own experience and being genuinely vulnerable which is scary because it usually requires us to feel something it's much easier to project or to blame the other as opposed to acknowledge like this is the story that's coming up for me and these, you know, this is how it's making me feel as opposed to saying you did this and now I feel shit. So I'm blaming you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> often say that owning your own shit is really, really helpful in relationships, right? It's helpful in life, I think. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah I'll, you know, I'll absolutely admit I'm an X, Y, and a Z. Oh, well, right? It's the way it is. The Popeye defense. I am who I am, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's also a trap. <laughs> it was what? And that's also a trap of like thinking like I am this way and I'm never I can never change and blah 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 like that's also just a story that we we can believe or not believe. Yeah, and I will believe. I say I sort you know I've seen myself change over the years, but not in radical discontinuous ways. What's your thought about how much change is reasonable or healthy for a human to undergo <laughs> over a period of a few years? Let's say. <laughs> what is reasonable or healthy? Uh, I'm going to put a a sharper edge on it. When I see people radically change because they Uh went to some therapist or some group or something, Uh I say, that's a shallow motherfucker. What the hell's wrong with that person? I don't (laughs) trust them. (laughs) So I I have a few answers for this. The first one is that sometimes change can be a surface level thing, and it's actually a more elaborate way of the ego running away from something in a different way. And I think there's another deeper form of change. And Bill Plotkin, Dr. Bill Plotkin talks about this in the the Journey of Soul Descent is the book. And I had him on my podcast. And he he talks about a kind of like radical extended ego dissolution, where usually through a number of crises or a particularly intense crisis, someone, parts of their ego, parts of their identity disintegrate to such a large degree that almost a genuinely new version 
that is less like mired in that shit emerges on the other side. And I went through this myself to some degree during a process of, of deep grief. I, I lost my ex-fiance. And at some point during that, I let the grief like fucking annihilate me. And 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 it it really changed who I thought I was on a very deep level. And so that wasn't something that like I did. It was more just a allowing myself to surrender to a, a natural process, which then I say did change me on the other side, but not out of like me efforting to try and change myself, but it was just like a natural thing that happened. And so I think like enormous change can happen in a very short period of time. And usually certain people are like ripe for it. And it's usually people who are having like existential crises or people who are, you know, in depression or people having really challenging circumstances. That's normally when like something they they allow something in to a deeper degree and then genuine transformation happens on the other side. I mean, I know the people at Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, say mm-hmm. uh, yep. that most Alkies aren't going to actually change until they hit rock bottom. Right. Yeah. And it's it's unfortunate in a way. And it's also beautiful. And, you know, there's there's many people who tragically do get stuck in what Zach Stein calls like the tragic. We go from the pre-tragic to the tragic and then the post-tragic. But for the people who are able to often surrender to the pain and find their way in that post-tragic beauty where there's still not an an ignorance of the suffering but it's like finding the beauty and the joy in the suffering like that's like that's the fucking magic and i think for in many ways that's the question of of game b is like how do we take this massive humanity who are stuck in the tragic and like give them the tools and the ecology of practices such that they can pop out and find themselves in a more consistent state of post-tragic very good. Now let's move on to another little conversation we had. This happens to be a topic I'm very interested in, which is you you wrote, been thinking about play recently, specifically what are huh. some of the barriers that get in the way or what conditions need to be present for play mm. to spontaneously emerge? And my response was mind cleared of distractions. It's why kids are so good at play. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big one. And I think... I mean, speaking from my experience, yeah, we have so many barriers to play as adults, like fucking hell, like our deep desire to be productive and useful all the time. Like play is inherently opposed to the part of ourselves that wants to be productive because it requires that we do something for the sake of itself, regardless of what the end result is. And I think for many of us, speaking for myself, play is a really, it's a really edgy thing to lean into because one, you know, there's maybe shame around fear of looking silly, fear of looking stupid, fear of being perceived as like immature, like people poke fun at you. And there's this sense of like, like, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time doing this like quote unquote pointless thing? And and, and that I think points to something which also is required, which is this deep embodied sense of safety and, and bringing it back to the nervous system to some degree. Play requires what's known as ventral vagal tone which means that we feel safe in our bodies. And I, we, we have a puppy right now. And I like see this with our puppy. Like she plays all the time, but when she's outside and there's loud noises, she won't play because she's like, I, like I'm afraid I want to like curl up. I have, to, fig- I have to figure out what the hell's going on here. I don't, I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not free of distractions. Yeah. And, 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 and so play requires this embodied safety, which, you know, can be created through external conditions like you know, having like financial stability, having some degree of certainty in our lives is super helpful. And I think there's a lot of deconditioning required 
and for you know for me at, at British school we were like we were rewarded for giving correct answers as opposed to playing and exploring and asking good questions and I think the the art of play is it's so free and, and play is also where we explore our edges and our boundaries it's where we learn in low stakes environments and so the more that we can kind of like forget like textbook learning and like taking in information and more just playful exploration i think it's it's really needed i mean what's what's your sense beyond the beyond what you shared on twitter yeah i would say that i've always tried to find room in my life for play i won't say i always ha- had enough but you know, one of the reasons I had our country farm, uh, wife and I owned through much of my business career, was a place we could go and just dick around, you know, hike around, <laughs> drive around on ATVs, uh-huh. shoot guns, blow shit up, you know, have yeah. friends over, just, you know, old neighborhood friends, not business friends, not intellectual friends, just people to know how to have a yeehaw good time. And, you know, we'd play silly games, uh, you know, and so I always tried to leave enough room in, in life for play, probably didn't always, but always thought it was right important. And I've lately gotten a really good education, a re-education in play, because I now have a young granddaughter, two and a half Mm -hmm. years old, who's Mm -hmm. a very ebullient personality, highly energetic, and just loves playing about, you know, her and I will sit there and build stuff with blocks for, you know, 45 minutes. And uh, and it's just like, all we're doing is playing with blocks, but we're not, but we say all that we're doing, it's actually a dance, you know, together we're kind of deciding what we're going to build and when we're going to knock it over and start over again. (laughs) And that is just such a good thing. Yeah. Do you think that you've got better at playing as the years have gone by? Well, the fact that I've uh, been retired from business for 20 years, two years has given me lots of time to play. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I would say I got better after I retired from business because there were times I was, you know, I never worked hard. I mean, this this, I think this is important too, is a life lesson from rut, right? Which is I worked really hard Monday through Friday in my startups and in my corporate life, et cetera. But, and this was an agreement I had with my wife, I pretty much left business on the shelf for the weekend. And, you know, I hear all too many people who kind of worship the grinding lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm, that they think mm-hmm. that they need to work seven by 24. And I strongly counsel against that. Have play in your life or at least some hobbies or something, right? And yeah. your, net, your net productivity will actually go up, I'm willing to predict, if you do not feel that you need to grind on Saturday and Sunday every week. In fact, right. I, I sometimes will, you know, just for fun, I'll say, because I do a lot of mentoring of young business people and even a little bit older than young business people. I'll say, you know, I had a fairly fun, intense business career for 30 years. How often do you think I went into the office on the weekends in 30 years and they'll say, Oh, I don't know, a thousand times or something. I go "Mm, about 30 (laughs) once Mm -hmm. a year, maybe I go into the office on the weekend. And and this was before all the remote tools. So pretty much that meant I didn't do any business work on the weekend other than maybe read a paper or something. And, and I think that consciously designing one's life for some significant amount of unscheduled time, especially with respect to work is really important. That sounds dangerously like self-improvement advice, Jim. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I love that. And I think what comes to mind for me is, you know, also like during the week, like when you're working on the business, it's like, how can a sense of play be 
introduced into that. And, and something that I track in myself is this difference between taking things too seriously or being sincere versus serious, as Alan Watts puts it. And it's like, I can be sincere and playful in what I'm doing. And I remember reading a book by, I think it was Stephen Johnson. He talked about how many of the great inventions of this age began as like playful tinkering experiments. So people was like having fun on weekends. And then it turned into this like amazingly useful, productive thing, but it was born from that spirit of play. And I think the more that I kind of bring that into the work I'm doing right now of like not creating this, this binary distinction of like in the mornings, I'm in like work mode, I'm focused, I'm like, you know, browse furrowed serious mode, but like how can actually that have an element of play in it as well? Yeah, I think that's always good. I always tried to have a good time at everything I did. And mm -hmm. I always, and of course, it's probably harder today with all these uptight woke motherfuckers, you can't <laughs> joke or anything like that. You know, we used to have a good time at work, right? And I don't think anybody was disrespected or suffered from microaggressions or any of that horse shit, right? Uh, and if they did, they were big enough to just suck it up and roll with it, right? But I think it would it's kind of constipating people emotionally to have to work in corporate America today or out of probably UK as well. What do you think about that? Uh, <laughs> do I think it's emotionally constipating to work in uh, corporate environments? I've never had a, a job really, so I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. Good man, <laughs> good, man. good answer. <laughs> and uh, and at the same time, I've I've you know met a lot of people who have quit their jobs in the city and then gone on these journeys where they've realized they, and this was true for me as well, of like being numb from the neck down essentially, and just like living in their heads, in their minds, intellectually overanalyzing everything and then realizing, oh shit, there's this like inner landscape of emotions and, and feelings that I've been oblivious to for years or decades. And so I think the corporate environment, unfortunately, in many cases does perpetuate that like uptight emotional repression. And I think that's unfortunately a really shitty thing. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, no, not at all. Our companies in the 80s, we had good times you know, and crazy times. Sometimes we get into fist fights and shit and we argued about <laughs> things. And yeah, definitely no repressed repressed anger at that company. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely not. People weren't into, I mean, we did not tolerate passive aggressives. You want to be aggressive, be aggressive, aggressive. Right? <laughs> and and it was, intellectual honesty was always the highest value mm -hmm. in, in our companies that, you know, you should always say what you think. And to not say what you think is a failure of courage. And courage is the most important of all virtues because without courage, none of the other virtues are possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I, you know, I've lived my life as, you know, trying to be someone who I see, I see myself as like courageous, like doing the courageous thing. And I think there's also a fear of, you know, like being perceived as, as helpless or, or cer certain situations where actually the, the truly courageous thing is to, is to maybe you know, not, not say what we, or, or say what we think in a way that creates connection as opposed to disconnection. I think that it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> and I think that's correct. I mean, I mean, there are lots of ways you can say what you think in ways that just piss people off for no right. good reason. And yeah, as they yeah. say here in the South where I live, a Southern gentlewoman never offends anybody unintentionally. <laughs> 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 I, I've, I've yet to adventure to the, the, the South, but I, I'm sure I'll make it make it down there at some point. Definitely time. the best part of America, though it has its <laughs> it has its quirks like any place else. Now we're going to turn maybe a little bit back to my somewhat more 
jaded straw man anti view here. This is another tweet, which begs the question from you, how does one invest in their mental health, regular early sunlight, which I agree with, by the way, somatic-based therapy, strong mm-hmm. community and friendships, I agree, learn protocols, regular exercise, avoid processed food, what else? And then I wrote, rule number one, don't think about your mental health. Because mm. <laughs> mm. if, mm-hmm. I, if I look at the arc of history, say my parents' generation, these were the G.I. Joe World War II people, right? They went through the Great Depression. They went through World War fucking II. They went through the bomb over their head. They, my f- parents were in their, how old have they been? Early 40s during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I didn't know any of them that were crazy or any of them that had mental health issues. Now, a few of them drank more than they should have probably, but... You know, they seemed pretty fucking mentally healthy and boomers were somewhat less, you know, a little bit less resistant to thinking about their mental health and they were a little crazier. You know, the Xers, the same, millennials, the same, and now our Zoomers, all they fucking talk about is their mental health and they're the Mm. craziest motherfucking generation that uh, America's ever had. So uh, it strikes me that at least based on empirical data, worrying about your mental health is bad for your mental health. (laughs) <laughs> well there's, there's there's i mean there's obviously a piece of like correlation versus causation in in that <laughs> um and i mean the word mental health i agree with you i don't think it's particularly helpful because it also kind of emphasizes this day descartes descartesian like stupid notion that the mind and the body are two separate things and so separating physical health from mental health is absurd in in, in many ways and I think, you know, speaking to previous generations, I also think that there was a, a large amount of like, of like emotional repression that went on. And I didn't live through these, these eras. I don't, I don't know. But from what I'm guessing is that they found ways to still be functional and to still like operate and, and, you know, raise families in these things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they were thriving and happy and i think that meant because there was so much stigma around talking about these things around depression and you know, anxiety and suicidal thoughts these these types of things i think it was often just swept under the rug and so i think what's happening now is the opposite like it's coming out from under the rug and everyone is talking about it i think in in my view the conversation needs to shift from like purely mental health and you know seeing a therapist can be great I, I think it helps lots of people and if you're not working with the body in a somatic way it's basically impossible in my opinion to get to the root cause of what causes these addictions disorders the whole kind of gamut of, of mental health challenges and, and so I think what needs to be reframed is talking about like outlets and, and this is what we need in culture are, are like healthy places for emotional expression like in in the war in in the in eastern europe they had like sauna culture where twice a week they'd go in saunas they'd they'd sweat for like an hour and they process their emotions and their feelings and talk about things in community and that's how they they regulated themselves and we don't really have that in in the west right now there's not there's not these like socially acceptable places where all of that emotional debt that has been accumulated in our lives and potentially previous generations gets to be expressed or felt you know with the exception of like men's groups or ayahuasca ceremonies you know things like this which are very isolated and certainly not part of people's weekly or even monthly routines well, I'm going to add something here on this generational thing, because again, I, I hear all this. For my generation, at least, the typical place that you'd have your emotional 
outlet is with your best friends. You know, your mm-hmm. three or four or five friends that you, you know, as they say, a friend will help you move. A good friend will help you move a body, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Great. so your four or five lifetime good friends. Right. Uh-huh. Those are the folks that I look to if I have to really talk something through and they will listen to my ravings and I'll listen to theirs and they'll know us, you know, you know, one in particular, we've been friends now for 67 years right? wow. through thick and thin. And we know each other better than we know each other probably that better than either of us knows ourselves, right? One mm-hmm. of those kinds of deals. And yeah. so when we are going to have a, you know, if, we, if one of us needs to have someone to talk to, there's someone there to talk to, right? And, you know, one of the things that does scare me about the things you read in social science polling is that the number of authentic friends people have is trending down towards zero. And that's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. Um, I agree. And, and you're right. I, I mean, having... And, and it's also, it's not just like friends, but like, like deep friendships that like you're willing to share the uncomfortable shit and like, you know, like what's going on in your intimate relationship or like, I'm struggling a bit, you know, say the stuff that's real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hell, you'd move a body together so you can right. talk about anything. The Russians, yeah. uh, the Russians are very good at this, right? Under the uh-huh. Soviets, they had a tradition that everybody had at least a, one or two of these kind of deep life partners, friends, usually same sex. And the way that the friendship was sealed is that they each told each other something so subversive that they'd been sent to the camps if the KGB knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah, when I was 12, I wrote, fuck Stalin inside, uh, you know, a, a subway station <laughs> or something. Right? So this was the, where you got down to bare metal. And so you could then thereafter always have real bare metal conversations. Yeah. So in, in your work, do you, do you help people think about how they can have more bare metal, real deal friendships? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, answering from my own life, I think the, the deep friendships that I've, I've found have come through intense experiences. So like one example was, you know, going through grief. One of the, the gifts of that was actually bringing me closer to a handful of friends and family who like rallied around me and supported me during that time. I think that was a big piece. And then another thing that comes to mind is you know, there's, there's a rise, there's a rise of like men's work, men's groups. And I went to a retreat last year where we had like, like a ritual combat where we kind of put on boxing gloves. We got into the center of a circle with like 60 other men, like shouting around us and we just fought. And I ended up feeling you know, really close to that other guy by the end of it. And, and I think I mean, maybe for men in particular, going through challenging experiences together does forge deeper bonds and deeper friendships and there is maybe an absence again of like healthy containers to go through particularly physical challenges together outside of these like retreat situations but in 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 terms of like how the work i do influences this i think ultimately when when we are guarded and when we are afraid to feel certain emotions or we're afraid of like taking the lid off the thing that we've been like pushing down for long periods of time, that creates a barrier to deeper connection. And, and so even though we might intellectually like think, oh, I really want like a couple of close friends that I can really, you know, trust and bury bodies together with, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> like it's it's at like if we're simultaneously guarded and and like unconsciously like holding all this stuff it's actually really hard to to form deeper connections and so i think a a beautiful 
side effect of, of this work with nervous system mastery or, or breath work or increasing emotional fluidity is it allows for deeper connections and, and relationships, both intimate part partners, but also friendships, which are, I think, as you said, are, are like really like underappreciated thing in, in modern society. And I, I mean, I mean what, I'm curious, like, what's your sense of why is it less common to have deeper friendships and in some cases, like no real friends in, in the world today? That's an interesting question. And I want to give a multi-part answer because I also want to jump back to the fighting business. <laughs> well, one of the things I've, the big change from when I was a kid is when I was, let's say, in my early teens, we all fought, right? It was part of growing up and not getting into the occasional fight would have been very weird. And if and you got into a little trouble for fighting, but not a whole lot, you know, now you fight in school, they're literally call the police and, mm. you know, zero tolerance, blah, blah. I'm convinced, quite convinced that this is what causes school shootings, right? Mm. You know, cause mm. to your point, you know, some of the people you got into a real fight with, you might, they may well become your good friends. Or if you're, you know, a victim of a bully and you and your best friend go trash the motherfucker, right? It puts an end to it, right? Instead of the pressure just building up till you bring your AR to school and shoot the place up. We didn't have school shootings in our day. No such thing. No cops in the schools, nothing. But there were fights every day in middle school, junior high schools, we called it in those days. And I, in my conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta, I've had several conversations with him on my podcast, and he and I both agree that this alienation from the sparring that the young male mammal needs. I mean, look at puppies. They're fighting and rolling around, <laughs> nipping yep. at each other. You know, chimps uh -huh. famously are pounding on each other. You know, uh -huh. wolves, you know, any kind of mammal, particularly social mammal, the young males engage in sparring. And this banning of sparring from the life of the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old male, you know, strikes me as terrible. And that, you know, they, and you don't know how to really relate because, you know, some of my best friends are from that epoch, right? And younger even, and not being able to have those kinds uh, of experiences is quite telling. The second, this is something I've long been a believer in, is that I think if there's two kinds of links in the world, of course, everything's on a continuum, but think of strong links and weak links. You know, strong links are the things you do, you know, moving a body, right? counseling somebody on their breakup face-to-face -face over a bottle of fucking whiskey, right? Weak links are D-D-D-D-D-D on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Or text messaging back and forth with 17 different people. Those aren't really strong links. So I, I suspect if we did a time audit on people, the emergence of cheap, fast, weak links in our society has depleted our time and our emotional stockpile for building strong links. And that if we took our phones and threw them out the window for a couple of years and just started going out on Friday nights and driving around looking for trouble and hanging out with our friends, we would build considerably more strong links than we do going, dee, 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 posting Instagram selfie, blah, 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 blah. That that's all, all weak links. And mm -hmm. there's probably a approximately finite amount of time and mental capacity you have for managing your social links. And the more weak links you have, the less strong links you have. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if it is zero sum. I mean, it could be zero sum to some degree. I think also the way that things like Twitter and social media are created, we get these dopamine hits instantly. 
Exactly. That's what they're designed to do. And the worst one of all is goddamn TikTok. I'm going <laughs> to, all my listeners will know here that I will have one of my plug in rants. Any parents out there, your kids got TikTok on their phone, make them delete it. It's the worst <laughs> goddamn thing that's been created. I've been building online products for 41 years. Uh-huh. And I can tell you, as soon as I picked up TikTok, signed into it, I say, oh, this is it. This is perfection. Uh-huh. This is uh-huh. online fentanyl. Uh, all <laughs> they do is, you know, uh-huh. it's perfect. It's perfect. Can't get any better than this. It's utterly vile, bad. Delete it from your phone. Delete it from your kid's phone. And, and, and letting your kids have TikTok is worse than giving them cigarettes. God damn it. So rant, <laughs> rant off. Great. Yeah, I haven't really used it myself, but I can, I can totally see that. Um, so I, yeah, I, I suppose like in the absence of those easy, quick dopamine hits, again, the conditions are maybe created. And I think play's part of this as well. I think play also forms deeper friendships. Um, again, because th- there's this sense of like investing time in something which doesn't have a productive outcome. Like friendship, it takes a lot of time and emotional labor to invest into it. And there's not like, you know, you don't get paid. There's not like a thing at the end. And yeah, you don't get a silver star or anything. It, it, it's right. for its own sake. It's like right. play. Friendship right. and play are both for their own sake. Right, which is beautiful. And it's there seems to be this conditioning that's built up particularly in i guess my generation of of a resistance to do things that are just like for the sake of themselves and, and nothing else and and it does require you know I, th- I think i mean this retreat that i went to like we put our phone the phones were like chucked away like no one looked at them for three days and it's amazing how i think deep connections can be forged in a really short space of time and, and i felt this to the degree that like there were there was, there was one guy there who I felt as close to as some men that I'd known for maybe like five years. And so it's not necessarily a function of time. It's just like, how deep are you willing to go in that short? And sometimes it's easier to do that with someone who's a relative stranger who doesn't have all these preconceptions about who you are or things like that. Um, But I I agree with you. I think it's a real, it's a tragedy that there is so little emphasis placed on on friendship and how important it is and and i think also that there's like a there's like a cultural obsession with the kind of atomic family unit and how that is prioritized over particularly same-sex friendships but friendships generally yep yeah and 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 i would argue that well occasionally you can build strong friendships virtually it's face to face where you really build the strong friendships Mm -hmm. or or at least Mm -hmm. you do so quickly i mean i've had one of my best friends, we had a transformational four-hour conversation one mm. time, right? And that was the first time we'd actually, I think we'd met, you know, we were both on the same board of directors, right? And so we mm-hmm. had probably an occasional, you know, thing. But somehow after one of the meetings, we sat down and had a four-hour conversation. And I think we've been, you know, pretty serious friends ever since that occurred because the conversation went very deep into what we were about, what we thought was important, what we thought right living was, what the virtues were, how those had gone awry in our society. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you could have endless tweets with somebody and you have no idea about these things about them. Mm. One four-hour conversation and, you know, we're basically synced for life as far as I could tell. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think there's a, there's a piece of of like nervous system co-regulation that happens when you are in the same room as someone, you can feel them to a deeper degree. And, and, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced this with some friends who 
I'd say they've been like intellectual friendships, but there hasn't been that like deeper connection. And it's usually been going on either an adventure together. I did like a stand up paddleboard trip over two weeks in Norway with three friends and we emerged like super tight after that. Or, or more recently I was like wrestling with a friend again, like, like in our house, like downstairs. And that's something about that of like the physical intensity of it just creates a deeper, a deeper connection. Indeed, indeed. Now I'm going to talk, uh, this conversation made me realize play being a very good and important thing can also get hijacked like anything else. The phenomenon, particularly of young males getting sucked into video games to mm. the exclusion of all else. Just I'm not making this up. It's not, nothing I put in my notes, but is there an example of sort of, sort of play gone wrong maybe or something like that? Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I think, ooh, good question. There's still that really healthy aspect of play that is there, I think. I think the, the tragedy is that it's through a medium or it's mediated by small computer screens and it, it is like disintegrating human bodies if they're just kind of hunched over looking at screens for 12 hours a day. Um, but I, I feel like the actual play impulse in that is still alive and beautiful and, and if you know someone could create something where they were holding the same remote control but they were like running around the forest like like slashing killing dragons or you know, like sh shooting imaginary enemies like i think that would be amazing i think it's purely just unfortunate that the medium is through through screens and mostly indoors which is just terrible for mental health physical health the nervous system all these things but I would also suggest that if they're in play mode 12 hours a day at the expense of making a living and establishing romantic relationships and having real world friendships and burying bodies together, you know, <laughs> there's something, something seriously off uh, balance there. Yeah, I, for sure. I mean, like anything, you can take healthy things to an extreme and they become very unhealthy and dysregulating. I, I mean, it's funny. I my friend and I both bought uh, Zelda recently because we both kind of grew up playing Zelda. And I attribute that game, like running around as Link and going on like secret missions and adventures. I love it. It, it like, it seeded this thing in me, this like aliveness, which I then took to traveling the world for like three or four years. And I, I saw myself as like finding secret surf spots and like having that same adventurous spirit. So, I, I mean, for me, it was a really like beautiful and healthy thing, honestly, I think. And like you say, it's just, it, it, I think when there isn't connection in the other areas of life, whether it's connection through friends, family, like oneself, then it becomes an escape. And it becomes something which that video game becomes the only way that they can have those needs met for friendship, community, play, meaning, purpose, like identities where they see themselves as warriors with, you know, firing, fiery swords, these kinds of things. Like it's easy yeah. to see how that is more appealing than those people who have lives that are, don't have that sense of inherent connection in, in them. And we have that even new higher level coming up with the so-called metaverse, if that happens, right. right? A fully immersive, you know, I've heard some cynical things from Silicon Valley folks. Oh, yeah, let the young guys work at the UPS store, but they can drive Lambos and live in a castle in, meta, in the metaverse and they'll be happy, right? I, go, right? I don't think so. I think, I don't know. I've, I've got a serious problem with that. 
Yeah, and and I think like what my like my thing with that it is it it means people are so disconnected from their bodies. Like if they're get if they're getting all those all those things from metaverse games, but they're not actually feeling the things into like in some ways the body is the ultimate metaverse. Like that's where we feel these sensations and emotions and and like you know you can take a walk and it's it's amazing. <laughs> like why would anyone I mean, I can see why why it is appealing and addictive for people that have challenging circumstances. And I just wish that that lens of like wonder and fascination and play could be applied to, to like this and without, without, a, without a headset. <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, sir. Yeah, exactly. I love it. That's great. All right. Last thing here as we turn towards the end of the episode, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your nervous system mastery course. Mm. Yeah, sure. So it it kind of emerged out of a series of workshops I did with leaders and CEOs that was focused on emotional resilience. And the piece that resonated the most was using in particular breathing practices to up and down regulate their nervous system and to kind of change energy levels in real time. And so I've developed a curriculum which basically has three pillars. One pillar is building interoception, like building that somatic awareness to listen to the feedback and data from our body. The second is practices and protocols for self-regulation. So instead of, you know, taking pills, alcohol, caffeine, whatever it is, you can just use your breath or other optic flow, other, other practices to shift your state in real time. And then the third piece is what we were talking about earlier around emotional fluidity. It's, it's like, how do you build the skill and I think is a skill of accepting, welcoming and feeling emotions as opposed to repressing them or projecting them onto onto other people. And so it, it's like a five week boot camp. We've had 400 people go through it so far and it's it's really fun. Like honestly for me it, it's a way in which I get to distill a lot of the practices and experiences and tools and things I've learned into a kind of like learning environment where there's this this spirit of self-experimentation and we, we use this thing called the Feynman principle where students have to like explain to each other what they think they've learned from things. And it's a very like interactive community-based learning. It's not like me just saying shit at a screen, <laughs> which I find terribly boring. And so I've tried to make it as, as fun and engaging and, and, and playful as possible. Honestly, I think that's, a, that's been a big part of my approach. That sounds like it must be virtual. I can't imagine in this day and age, too many people being willing to go to a five-week face-to-face camp. <laughs> so it might be a good idea for them. Uh, yeah, well, maybe. I mean, I'd like to. I'd definitely like to do a week-long thing at some point in the next year or two in person because I think there is, like we were saying, you know, a degree of connection that's only possible when you're in the same space as someone. But yeah, for now, it's it's virtual, but using Zoom breakout rooms to still build some connection as well. And where do people go to learn more about the Nervous System Mastery course? That is on nsmastery.com, which is the, the website. And you can also find me on Twitter and just say hi, ask me questions. Yeah, I love talking about it. So please do harass me there. All righty. Well, I think this turned out to be a quite good little podcast episode, despite its non-traditional origin story. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for taking pity on me and inviting me on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought we had a really good conversation. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Learned a few things. Yeah, me too. Me too. I really, really enjoyed this. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. 
Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. <laughs>